Charles, if you'll bump up my volume just a little bit. John chapter 7, if everyone's there. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of the seven feasts that God instituted for His people Israel to celebrate. It occurred for eight days in the fall of the year, in the Jewish month of Tishri, which corresponds with our September-October. Tabernacles was the final feast on the yearly calendar, and it was the most elaborate of all of the feasts in its celebration. The Jews referred to it as the feast. The historian Josephus called it the holiest and greatest of all the feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles was a week-long combination of our Thanksgiving, Independence Day, and New Year's Day all rolled into one. The feast went by several nicknames. First was ingathering. Israel would give thanks for the incoming harvest during this time. Second was Sukkoth, or booths. During the feast, families would live in outside shelters to celebrate God's provision for Israel. During the 40 years, they slept under the stars and traveled through the wilderness. The feast also looked to a future day. It was sort of a New Year's day, a new day. It looked to a new day when Messiah would return and fulfill his promises to Israel and reign over all the earth. It was a wonderful feast. It meant many things to the Jews. John 7 occurs at the Feast of Tabernacles. Verses 1 through 10 take place prior to the feast. Verses 11 through 36 in the midst of the feast. Verses 37 through 52 on the last day of the feast. In the chapter we discover three attitudes toward Jesus. The attitude of his siblings, the celebrants, and the Jewish Sanhedrin. Well, verse 1 tells us, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Days earlier, remember, Jesus had been in Jerusalem, and he had healed the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. And in doing so, he had violated their Sabbath laws and done so right outside the temple, right under the noses of these uppity, self-righteous priests. Jesus had attacked their legalism by claiming to be God. And all he'd done was to follow his father's lead. That's all he'd done. Of course, his logic inflamed their fury. They grew bloodthirsty. How dare you call God your father? Jesus had retreated now to Galilee to allow passions to cool down. Verse 2 tells us, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. This was required of all Jewish males, 20 years old and older. They were required to travel to Jerusalem to attend this feast. And if Jesus was to obey the law, ready or not, he would have to go back to Jerusalem. We're told his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. And their tone here gets a little sarcastic. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Isn't that interesting? According to Matthew 13 verse 55, and contrary to the Roman Catholic Church, Mary and Joseph had other children, at least four boys and two girls. Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. Which means, by the way, Jesus understood the dynamics of a blended family. He and his siblings knew that they didn't share the same father. Could it be that Joseph's kids scoffed at their brother? I mean, did they really believe in the virgin birth, or did they consider it just sort of a a family fable, a scandal and a cover-up? Could it be they were jealous? Jesus, remember, was sinless. And I imagine the other kids in the family got tired of hearing Mary say, Why can't you be like your older brother? (laughs) I mean, living in the shadow of an elder, successful sibling is tough enough. Imagine if your big brother just happened to be God. Whatever their reasons, Joseph's kids didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. His own family doubted him. 
And here they want to give him some advice. They act like his publicity manager. If he wants the world to believe in him, why not seek the largest stage possible? They tell him to go ahead and head to Jerusalem. The city will be crowded at the feast. It'll be the perfect opportunity for you to prove yourself, Jesus. But Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Here's his point. Every opportunity for God doesn't constitute a calling from God. This is good for you and I to remember. Just because it makes sense, just because it seems to be God's will, doesn't necessarily make it so. Jesus was prompted by obedience, not just opportunity. It reminds me of the insurance agent who got a frantic phone call one night. A woman asked, do you sell homeowner's insurance? The agent replied, well, of course I do. She said, can I buy a policy over the phone? The the agent replied, well, no, I'll have to come out to your home and have you sign some paperwork. The lady shouted, well, you better hurry up because my house is on fire. You know, it's been said, timing is everything. I've heard this. There are three things a man can do without sensing that he's wasting time. Make war, court a woman, and create art. And I would add a fourth. Wait on God. Time spent waiting on God is never wasted time. You see, Jesus possessed what his brothers lacked, a sense of God's timing, and here he he exercises it. Verse 7 continues Jesus' reply. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Jesus tried a covert pilgrimage. Apparently, though, he was spotted by the paparazzi. Word got out. And then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, nah, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Boy, Jesus was still a hot topic, was he not? Privately, the people debated Jesus' claims and deeds, while the Jewish hierarchy was publicly hostile toward him. Verse 14 tells us, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Jesus sensed it was time. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Now, it's not that Jesus had never studied or never opened his Bible. To the contrary, his mind was steeped with the Scriptures. What the Jews noticed was his lack of formal theological training. He didn't have the degrees and the college experience that, uh, that they possessed. You know, every rabbi spent... Years and years in school, studying in the yeshivas. A rabbi would always serve an apprenticeship under another rabbi. But Jesus was a rabbi with no rabbi. He had been his own teacher. It's been said, while the scribes and the Pharisees taught from authorities, quoting all the famous rabbis, Jesus taught with authority. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said of old, but I say to you. Jesus taught with authority. Jesus lacked the proper accreditation in the eyes of the Jews, and yet he taught with such heavenly, tremendous wisdom. Well, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. God was his rabbi. That's a pretty good rabbi to have. Rabbi God. Jesus wasn't man-taught. He was God-taught. He says, if anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. And here is a tremendous truth. Reread this verse. Notice, it's the willing heart, not the inquisitive mind, that will ultimately know the Scriptures. 
He says, if anyone wants to do his will, if you're willing, if you want to obey, things will open up to you. You'll understand the scriptures. This is the prerequisite for Bible knowledge. Not an inquisitive mind, but a willing heart. The desire to know has to be coupled with the desire to do. Then he says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. See, a teacher can purify his doctrine by making sure his motive is to please God rather than to attract attention to himself. A teacher should always ask himself or herself, am I preaching to be popular or am I preaching to be faithful? I try to ask myself that every week. In verse 19, Jesus asks, Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Now remember, this exchange is in the temple. And the place is packed. There are people all over. They're crawling everywhere. All the Jewish establishment is on hand. And they've been plotting Jesus' assassination. Now he boldly exposes their hypocrisy. And he confronts them. He says, Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? But the Jewish hierarchy who were in the background, they understood. They knew. They were the ones that were sponsoring the hit on Jesus. They had already put out a contract on him. The pilgrims, the rank and file Jews, were ignorant of the scandal that was brewing behind the scenes. Verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marveled. Of course, he was talking about the healing of the lame man by the pools of Bethesda. He says, Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. You remember circumcision predated Moses. It goes all the way back to Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus is about to point out the hypocrisy and how the Jews had applied the Sabbath laws. The law of Moses commanded every Jewish male to be circumcised on the eighth day from their birth. And the rabbis were strict. The eighth day, not the seventh day, not the ninth day. The eighth day, even if it meant performing the circumcision on the Sabbath day. Thus, they did allow for some work to be done on the Sabbath day. The work of circumcision. Jesus continues... If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? I mean, circumcision was a trivial procedure compared to healing a man who had been crippled for 38 years. I mean, don't you think God is is pleased when a crippled man can walk again? How could that be less pleasing to God than a child being circumcised? Jesus was was challenging their hypocrisy. Verse 24, he says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Boy, could we learn a lot from that verse. The Jews were all about rules and rituals while ignoring what was just and right. This is the problem with legalism. Invariably, you end up majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. On July the 4th, 1776, remember that date, July the 4th, 1776, King George II of England logged the following entry into his personal journal. Nothing of importance happened today. He didn't realize that an American revolution had been born on that same day. A movement had started that would dismantle his empire. He obviously misjudged the events around him. You know, researchers say that 10,000 thoughts go through the human mind every day. 10,000 thoughts. Right now, Marvin's mind is being bombarded by the Dallas Cowboys crushing defeat today 10,000 thoughts go through the human mind every day we're constantly thinking and analyzing and critiquing and judging and yet we need to be careful about drawing conclusions it's not always as it seems do do you know that 
It's rarely as it seems. There's always information we lack. Before we reach a conclusion about a person or about a situation, we need heaven's perspective. And if God withholds his viewpoint from us, then we need to reserve our judgment. Now verse 25 tells us, Some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? See, the Jews who knew of Jesus' opposition, they wondered if his opponents had changed their minds. They voiced their reservations. They say, however, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Now, now this was the, the hurdle to their faith. The rabbis taught that the Messiah would come suddenly and mysteriously. That you wouldn't be able to trace his origins. They hadn't read the scriptures. This was an unbiblical notion. In contrast... Everyone knew Jesus' family tree. that They could trace back his lineage. Matthew does that. Luke does that. His genealogy was common knowledge. His brothers were in town. He was a local from Nazareth. Actually, the Old Testament had spoken of Messiah's lineage. The scriptures had traced Messiah back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. They were just wrong in their assumptions that the Messiah was suddenly going to just pop up. No, you'd be able to trace him back, his lineage. You would know who he was and where he'd come from. Verse 28, then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, You both know me and you know where I am from and have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true whom you do not know, but I know him for I am from him and he sent me. You see, the Jews traced his origins to Nazareth. Jesus says that's not far enough. I've come from heaven. Again, the idea that Jesus pre-existed prior to his birth and had been sent by God was a claim to his deity. Remember, humans don't pre-exist their birth. Humans begin when they're born. Jesus has no beginning. He, He is from eternity past to eternity future. And I love what Jesus is doing here. He's throwing gas on the fire of those who oppose him. I mean, the Jews... They had distinguished themselves from the world's idolaters as the people who knew the one true God. Jesus says, him you do not know. He's making the matter. Then they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Their threats almost mushroom into action here. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? I mean, mean, look at the miracles Jesus has performed. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. A warrant gets issued, but the arrest never occurs. Again, it's not God's time. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? The dispersion or the diaspora were the Jews living outside of Israel. The Pharisees thought Jesus here was speaking of going beyond the borders and going into the Greek world to teach the Greeks. They continue, what is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me and where I am you cannot come? Jesus was going abroad, but a little further than anyone thought. He was sent from heaven, and he was returning to heaven. Jesus was headed where these Jews would never be able to follow. How sobering to compare Jesus' promise to these Jews with his promise to his disciples. You remember in John 14, verse 3, he says to his own disciples, he says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. But to these unbelievers, he says, where I am, you cannot come. Verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast. You know, at any Olympics, the biggest event is always the closing ceremony. 
And so it was with the Feast of Tabernacles. The last day was the big day. That great day of the feast, John says. At the closing ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priests would lead a procession from the temple all the way down to the southern part of the city to the Pool of Siloam. There they would draw water from the pool. And they would fill their golden vessels. And then they would return to the temple by way of the water gate. They would circle the altar. And then in unison they would pour out their pitchers before the altar. Their ritual looked, back, looked backwards and it looked forwards. On the one hand it reminded Israel of the miracle that God worked in the wilderness. You remember the tavern, Feast of Tabernacles was about their wilderness experience. And on the one hand, it looked back to the miracle God worked in the wilderness when he brought water from the rock. You remember the story? But it also looked forward to the outpouring of the water of the Holy Spirit on the people of God. It was after this ceremonial water had been poured out of the pitchers that suddenly Jesus stood and he offered to make their ritual a reality. Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Wow. What an incredible promise. I can take your ritual And I can make it a reality in your life. Today Jesus is the rock in our spiritual wilderness. And from him the Holy Spirit flows to God's people. If we come to Jesus and if we open up our hearts and if we believe in him. The water of spiritual life of vitality and refreshment will bubble up within us. And flow like a mighty river from us. You know, one of the most awesome sights I've ever seen is the Niagara Falls. The river plummets 176 feet into the river below. Over 100,000 cubic feet per second of water flows over the edge and crashes into the rocks beneath. The spray creates a mist that rises hundreds of feet and can be seen from miles away. You know, when we come to Jesus and drink in the living water, He creates in us a rush of power, a spray of love that influences the people around us. Our life becomes a mist that can be seen by others. We become a river from which others can drink. We suddenly begin to convey and carry the power and love and grace of God. It all happens when we come to Jesus and drink. Verse 39, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. It wouldn't be until after the resurrection, after the cross and his glorification and then his resurrection. It happened in John chapter 20 when the disciples gathering in the upper room believed on the risen Christ. You remember, Jesus breathed on them and he said to them, receive The Holy Spirit. At that moment they received this rushing, gushing flow of the Spirit. The living water poured into their lives. Verse 40. Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ or the Messiah. And some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? Micah 5 verse 2 had predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. But Jesus had been raised in the little village of Nazareth, a small insignificant village in the Galilee. So there was a division among the people because of him. Here this shows the superficiality of their judgments. If they had just done a little homework, I mean, even ask a brother, they would have known that that Jesus, yes, he grew up in the Galilee, but he had been born in the little town of Bethlehem. He fit the prophecies. 
Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? Now these were the guys back in verse 32 with the warrant, the posse that had been sent out to handcuff Jesus. The priests want to know why an arrest hasn't been made. And the officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. You go arrest him if you want to. But we think there's more to this man than meets the eye. We're not going to arrest him. It was obvious to even his critics that Jesus was more than a mere man. I mean, these were just temple cops out trying to do their job. But boy, they backed off of Jesus. They saw his authority and his stature and his respect. And they bowed before him. Verse 47, then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Notice their disdain for the common man. I mean, these Pharisees, these chief priests, this was a haughty, self-righteous, spiritually superior bunch that looked down their nose at the common folks. Oh, they're just gullible. They're just ignorant. The masses, they're morons. They're dense and naive and dumb. These aristocratic Jews, they reassured themselves by thinking that none of their own members had broken ranks and believed in Jesus. But that wasn't true, was it? Remember a rabbi named Nicodemus? He was one of their members. He, he had taken an interest in Jesus. He had come to him at night, spoken to him back in chapter 3. And speaking of Nicodemus, verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? He stuck up for Jesus. Could have said more, but at least he said this. You know, according to John chapter 19, verse 38, Nicodemus and his sidekick, there was another among the Pharisees that believed in Jesus, a man named Joseph of Arimathea. They both became disciples of Jesus. But John says of Joseph in particular, he says, he became a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Apparently, this was also true of Nicodemus. Here he tries to get Jesus a a fair trial, but he stops short of really stepping up to to the witness stand and testifying on Jesus' behalf, at least not yet. Verse 52 tells us, Then they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Again, the Pharisees try to justify their rejection of Jesus with some prejudice toward Galileans. They assumed that the Galileans married their cousins and drank moonshine and kept dogs under their front porch and had tire swings in their yard. You know, like people from Alabama. I just couldn't resist putting that up there. I'm sorry. I mean, I mean, they're rationalizing in their minds, you know. How can Jesus be a prophet if he comes from the Galilee, redneck country, South Alabama? Good grief. The Galilee produces only rednecks, not prophets. But here they reveal their own ignorance of the Scriptures. There were prophets from the Galilee. 2 Kings 14 verse 25 lists Jonah's hometown as Gath Hefer, a village three miles northeast of Nazareth. Jonah was a Galilean. Remember too, Jesus' headquarters in the Galilee was Capernaum, Kephar Nahum, the village of Nahum. Another prophet with Galilean connections. Pharisees were just wrong. Well, chapter 7 ends and chapter 8 begins. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He exited the temple, he crossed over the Kidron Valley, he Climbed up the Mount of Olives. Perhaps Jesus had a favorite camping site. Maybe a garden called Gethsemane. Now early in the morning he came into the temple. And all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Feast of Tabernacles is over now. Usually the pilgrims head home. But apparently quite a crowd decided to stick around and and spend another day with Jesus. I, I think I would have been among them. Verse 3. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught 
in adultery. And before we read on, we need to address a problem. There is a controversy whether this story, the story of the woman taken in adultery, actually belongs in your Bible. The NIV, the nearly inspired version, I mean the New International Version, and a few of the other modern translations, they preface chapter 8 with these words. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, verse 53 through John 8, verse 11. To me, though, this is misleading. Yes, the account is omitted in some of the Greek manuscripts. But the story is in some of the oldest manuscripts, and it gets referred to by many of the early church fathers, a man named Papias mentions the story in 100 A.D. It was Augustine who explained why the passage had been left out of some of the manuscripts. He said that some of the copyists feared that Jesus' kindness toward the immoral woman could be misconstrued as his condoning adultery. And and therefore some of them uh, decided to leave it out. I like F.B. Meyer's comment on John 8 uh, verse 1 through 11 He says, there is no possibility of accounting for its existence except that the incident really took place. It reveals in our Savior's character a wisdom so profound, a tenderness to sinners so delicate, a hatred of sin so intense, an insight into human hearts so searching that it's impossible to suppose that the mind of man could have conceived it or the hand of man could have invented it. When I read the story, I agree. And I believe this account certainly belongs in our Bibles. Verse 3. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And it makes you wonder how they caught this woman in the very act when they didn't bring the man. The last I checked, it took two people to commit adultery. Deuteronomy 22 verse 22 makes this crystal clear. It says, if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The fact that the man here is conspicuously missing warrants the conclusion that this was a setup. This woman had been trapped in order to spring a trap on Jesus. Now Jesus is teaching in the temple when this angry, growling crowd of voices suddenly are heard. They're they're getting closer to Jesus, closer, closer. The crowd around him parts like the Red Sea and up stomps this troop of bloodthirsty Pharisees dragging this reluctant, half-naked woman. They sling her down in front of Jesus like a queasy new dad tossing a smelly diaper into the trash. They spew accusations. They they spit out judgments. They poke their fingers at her like they were thrusting swords. And the woman, oh, what a sight. She's lying in the dirt in the fetal position. Tears have cut trenches down her heavy makeup. At a distance, she looks pretty, but up close, this woman looks worn and haggard. She's been used and abused. She's been treated like a commodity. This woman would have agreed with Mae West when she said, I've been in more laps than a napkin. Years of abuse had ruined her body, and worse, it had hardened and had embittered her soul. She probably hated just about everybody. Especially the self-righteous Pharisees who were barking at Jesus over her. They say, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. You remember Jesus by this point was famous for his compassion and his forgiveness. But here if he just turns this woman loose, I mean it would be a flagrant disregard for the law of Moses. Jesus would be soft on sin. On the other hand, if Jesus picks up rocks along with them to stone the woman, he's going to destroy his reputation as a friend of sinners and as a man of mercy. Either way, the Pharisees, they think they've got him. 
But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. (laughs) It wasn't just what he wrote that was significant. It's what he didn't hear. Their accusations. Their condemnation. And I got good news for you tonight. Jesus is still deaf to those sounds. To this very day. He's still deaf to the railings and judgments and accusations that the devil tries to throw at us and accuse us. Still deaf to those. Now the Pharisees, they were snarling. They were were demanding an answer. But Jesus ignores them. He bends down and and he just starts to doodle in the dirt. What he wrote, we don't know. But, But the word translated wrote is the Greek word katagrapho, which means To write against. We do know that Jesus wasn't listing their positive characteristics. He was writing something against them. Apparently he was writing down some accusations against them. Verse 7 tells us, So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. One of the Greek manuscripts in which this story does appear adds a footnote. It says that Jesus wrote the sins of each of the Pharisees in the crowd. Perhaps he started writing down the names of their mistresses and the prostitutes they'd seen. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. Boy, the rocks that had been so tightly held, that had been held in tightly drawn fists, started dropping one at a time. And these Pharisees started walking away until Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. What a scene that was. When this woman was first thrown at Jesus' feet, there was hatred in her eyes. She hated the hypocritical Pharisees, she hated men in general. All her life long, men had peeled her like an orange and sucked out her sweetness and then thrown away the skin. And yet this man, this man was different. She had heard of Jesus. Who hadn't? But she would have never believed that a man could be this holy and yet this merciful. And now she's standing there looking at him. She knows that Jesus is pure and righteous, but she senses that he cares for her. And for the first time in this woman's life, she has found a man who cares for her as a person, as a human being, not just as an object. She has felt the lust of men, but this now feels like love. This is a whole new experience for her. (laughs) She is learning some new tricks here. The old dog's learning some new tricks. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's ironic. There was only one person in the crowd that day who had never sinned. There was only one person that day qualified to cast a stone. And yet he chose not to. Instead, Jesus chose to forgive this woman rather than condemn her. The pharisaical remedy for sin was to destroy the sinner. Oh, Jesus also hated sin. But he loved the sinner. Hey, the sin solution for the Pharisee was a stone. But the Jesus solution for sin is a stick of wood. The cross. And let me make one more point here. Let's make sure, please be sure, you remember this story. Not only when you're the woman in need of forgiveness, but when you're the one in the crowd with the stone in your hands. If Jesus can forgive this gal... Why can't you forgive the guilty party in your life? Well, Jesus said to the woman, Neither do I condemn you. 
go and sin no more. And I'm so sure she obeyed. I mean, this marked the turning point in her life. Love disarms a cynical attitude. Love breaks open a padlocked heart. Jesus restored to this woman value and virtue. Use someone and you take from them. You cheapen them. But save someone and you add value. You upgrade their worth. Jesus has given this woman a brand new life. And I am certain she became one of his most devoted followers. Now remember, all this has happened on the heels of the Feast of Tabernacles. And one of the foremost features of the feast were the temple lights. Giant candelabras were brought out for the Feast of Tabernacles. They were set up in the temple to remind the people of the fire by night that had guided them through the wilderness. The presence of God that had been a God that had led them. And these menorahs that they brought out at the Feast of Tabernacles, they were enormous. Their bases were a hundred feet high. The trunk of the menorah split into four branches, each with large cups on the top for oil. Young priests would climb the ladders to refill the oil. They would use the worn out garments of the priests as wicks. The light from these lamps was so bright that all Jerusalem glowed in the dark during the feast. Each night during tabernacles, people would gather in the courtyard of the temple to celebrate. Men would wave torches and women would dance and leap to the music of the cymbal and lute and lyre and trumpet. People would celebrate throughout the night. But on the day after the feast, all of these lights had been snuffed out. And it was probably just as the Levites were disassembling these special feast day menorahs and cleaning up the debris and all from the night before. It was then that Jesus once again stood up in the temple and he made a declaration, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. By this point it was morning. Perhaps the sun was rising above the eastern wall of the temple. Jesus may have pointed to the sunrise and declared, I am the light of the world. I am brighter than even the ritual menorahs. You know, Psalm 84 verse 11 and Malachi 4 verse 2 both make it clear that the sun was an Old Testament idiom for Yahweh, for God. And here Jesus, by saying He's the light of the world, again is claiming to be God. It was actually Jesus who hovered over the camp of Israel and led them through the wilderness. Jesus is the light of the world. You know, just as our solar system has but one sun, likewise the universe has but one God, one source of heat and energy and light and life and warmth. And if our sun were ever to burn out, life could no longer exist. Likewise, apart from Jesus, the sun, man fails to truly experience what life was meant to be. there's a zoo in Seattle, the Seattle Zoo. They have an exhibit that they call Nocturnal House. Even during the daylight, the zoologists keep the house dark. And they display exhibits under black light so that you can see. And they showcase various animals that come out only at night. They have vampire bats that suck on bottles of blood. I mean, strange animals come out at night and strange actions go on in the dark. As my mom used to tell me, nothing good happens after midnight. It's much safer to live your life in the sunshine. And this is also true spiritually. Live under the influence of Jesus. Live in the light. And it drives out the darkness. It sends the evil critters scurrying for their holes. Live in the light. Live under the influence of Jesus. Not in the darkness of this world and of our sin. Verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. You know, the Jews said that by the mouth of two or three witnesses that every word would be established. In Jewish courts, a single witness was never enough to validate a testimony. 
But Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. In other words, by its very nature, light bears witness of itself. Light doesn't need any corroboration. I mean, its very purpose is to shine and testify and illuminate. Light drives out the darkness and reveals the truth. Bible commentator Alfred Edersheim mentions a title that the Jews had for the Messiah. They called him the Enlightener. And when Jesus is present, this is what happens. Issues become clearer. The fog of confusion gets dispelled. Deception gets uncovered. Truth gets spotlighted. Insight abounds. Jesus is the light of life. He casts out the darkness. If you're confused tonight, if you're trying to make a hard decision, here's my advice for you. Draw close to Jesus. He's the light that you need to see correctly. Well, verse 15 tells us, you judge, Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. Jesus had been the victim of these superficial judgments, but he himself made no appearance-based judgments. He always looked beneath the surface. He looked to the heart of the situation or the heart of the person. He judges as God sees people. He says, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. You need two witnesses? Well, here they are. How about the Father and the Son? You recall at the end of chapter 5, Jesus had presented six witnesses. You remember? Remember what they were? Himself, John the Baptist, the miracles that he performed, his Father in heaven, the Scriptures, and Moses. All he needed was two. Verse 19, Then they said to him, Where is your father? In other words, Who's your daddy? Boy, they must have said it sarcastically. They had researched his background and they'd scoffed at the idea of a virgin birth. Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. You know, whenever someone sees me and Nick together, you know, instantly they recognize that, I mean, Nick, he's my son. I mean, he's dashingly handsome and favors his father. And I mean, they just look at him and they say, wow, he's just a chip off the old block. He just looks just like his daddy. Wow. No doubt about his parentage. And this is why if the Jews had really known God when they saw Jesus, they would have seen God's resemblance. They would have recognized God. Verse 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. Once again, it was God's timing that would dictate Jesus' plight, not the whims of the crowd. And then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And so the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come. You know, they tried to accuse Jesus of being suicidal. In Judaism, the lowest levels of Hades are reserved for those who commit suicide. They were determined here to try to assign Jesus to the worst possible damnation. They missed the verdict that they should have heard. Jesus said, you are the ones who are going to die in your sin. That's what they should have heard. Verse 23, and he said to them, you are from beneath... I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Jesus was a true alien. A genuine extraterrestrial. He was from above. 
His wisdom was heavenly. His mind was divine. He had God's love and God's nature. Jesus was from an entirely different dimension. Neither his origination nor his destination were here below. They were heavenly. Jesus had come from God and was going to God. And he goes on here. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. He says it again, hoping they'll hear it. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The penalty for unbelief is death. Physical death, but most importantly, spiritual death, eternal death. And it doesn't matter how moral or religious or spiritual or benevolent or kind you happen to be. If you don't believe that Jesus is he, you will die in your sins. Jesus made it crystal clear. And then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man. And he's talking here about his crucifixion. Then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. For I always do those things that please him. What makes you appreciate the discipline of Jesus. He had trained. He had tamed himself to only do those things that please the Father. Imagine this. To only speak those words that please the Father. Have you tamed your tongue to that extent? That you are always in control? Jesus never uttered a trivial word. His heart never missed a beat. He always kept in sync with the heart of his Father. His ear was always tuned to that heavenly whisper. Jesus' mind never entertained a stray thought or a sinful thought. He says, I always do those things that please the Father. What an example to you and me. We close in verse 30. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? I hope that you do.